This week we're in Saratoga Springs for the World Fantasy Convention with very special guests Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. Elizabeth Baer is the multiple Hugo Award winning author of more than 20 novels, including the J- Jenny Casey, Jacob's Ladder, New Amsterdam, and Eternal Sky trilogies. She is also part of the award winning SF Squee podcast team. Scott Lynch is the international best selling author of the Gentleman Bastard Epic Fantasy series, which started with the World Fantasy Award nim- nominee, The Lies of Locke Lamora. And welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome to the first one. This is not the first one we've done in World Fantasy Life, but the first one we've done with either one of you guys at all, which is amazing. Indeed. Partly because, partly because one of you, at least, was responsible for our not getting a Hugo Award one year, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that that's actually um, uh, Lynn Thomas's fault. If you, if you want your podcast to win a Hugo, you need to have Lynn Thomas on. You've got to go to the right center of the conspiracy, guys. Yeah, you've got to go to the right center. I didn't realize it was that simple. Well, it's, it's, it's a multi-centric conspiracy. Huh. Mm-hmm. Oh no, we can do that. So make no, everything out of silence yeah. and talk to the right person. Yeah. And it just rains Hugo's, you know, like in reality. Well, actually, we did we did try this before. We were all too distracted by the delights of Normandy when we were sort of stuck in a country farmhouse, and we were go- we were yes. going to do this, but sort of timing and, and the, the delights of sort of France sort of kept us from it. We we had such plans, but there was France all around us. And, you know, <laughs> we were helpless. So first of all. Thank you for taking the time out of your convention to join us. We really appreciate it. Our very great pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess an obvious part to, to, to place to start is how do the pair of you handle being fantasy writers working to get together, coming up and living together and all that sort of thing? Flawlessly. Frictionlessly. <laughs> um, you should see how she's looking at me. Actually, the, uh, the, the working together part is, is great mm-hmm. um, in general. I, I sit in my chair and Scott sits at his desk and we type at each other. Uh, <laughs> that's about eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're facing each other when you're typing, or you're facing away from each other? Um, it depends. At, we are we are currently in the process of buying a house together and co-locating. We've had a commuter relationship mm-hmm. for four years, and um, and it's getting old. It is getting old. Um, her place, we we have a very large extended office space, and we can put one at one end and the other one down at the far end. So we are in line of sight to each other. We are technically near each other, mm-hmm. but we are not, you know, in each other's little space bubbles. S- Scott, Scott's space bubble is roughly the size of Rhode Island when he's working. And then it, it, my, my apartment is a little bit uh, less useful. We are in separate rooms and we want to uh, get out of that habit. We want to be... Um, and Scott can actually see me from where he sits, but I can't see him. And Scott's writing these huge architectonic spaces, <laughs> so he probably right, know, yeah. My my ego needs that extra right. space. Um, no, we we uh, we tend to think that it's a lot healthier to um, to be visible to each other, even if we're not you know hovering over one another's shoulder. It's just uh, um, easier on everybody, and uh, it's it's really tolerable because she's really nice. Uh, but we've also had four He's years... He's pretty to, easy on the eye. We, I don't we, know if you... <laughs> we, we've had four years to get used to this whole thing, and, and so it's it's uh, we, we've had time to merge it. Yeah. Um, so we you know we, we do the Bear Show, we do the Lynch Show, and we do the Lynch and Bear Show. Which one mm-hmm. is this? Um, I, I think this is... A, this is a, a gentle Lynch and Bear Show. Oh, how come you get top billing? Because it's... Oh, I was wondering. Well, this is the 21st century. Sometimes I say Bear and Lynch, sometimes I say Lynch and Bear. <laughs> I vary it. That's why. Scott, Scott and they, they, there are people out there in podcast land right now who think that you just told them to lynch a bear. <laughs> well, both both of our last names are verbs. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, mm-hmm. so we've been spending a lot of time over the last week or two or three talking about 
issues like gender in science fiction, uh, entering the field, uh, the kind of barriers you're encountered. Now, you both in, you know, entered the field you know, different times. I mean, well, you, within you, a year of each other. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, and you, and you came on you know, so I entered the field with uh, the Jenny Casey trilogy, which came out in really quite rapid succession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had what, had a couple of short story sales before then, but they sank without a trace. So, so what was the experience for you like starting off as a young science fiction and fantasy writer at the time? Um, well, that would have been 2005. I've been doing this for 10 years now, professionally. Mm -hmm. and, well, you know, actually, I've been doing it for 12 years professionally because I sold the books in 2003. And you get actual money when you sell the books. It's just that... Mm -hmm. so, so you can... In my case, I started... I went... It was half-time on, on my day job, and I was writing the rest of the time. Um, and so I was, you know, a professional writer at that point. But nobody knew who I was. It was great. I was like a stealth writer. I'd go to conventions and nobody would know who I was. <laughs> was it the Campbell Award that made a difference? It was, I, well, the, the, the Jenny books made a pretty big splash. They, uh -huh. got, a, they got a lot of critical attention, um, especially for, for first novels. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, I was the Random House Land Speed record holder for... Uh, publication of a trilogy from sale to publication of the third book. Because yeah. hmm. I sold them in November of 2003, and all three books were in print by December 2005. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I have I have since been... Uh, I was beaten by Kelly Armstrong, I think, and mm. I have since really had my ass kicked by Naomi Novik. Yeah. So... <laughs> bam! <laughs> to the curb! Um... So I, there, there was some fuss about that because all, they put all three books out in the same calendar year. Yeah. Um, and actually, all three books were collectively collectively won the the Locust Best First Novel Award. Mm -hmm. They treated them as one mm -hmm. one book. So there, that that was actually worth a, a fair amount of buzz, and the Campbell Award was worth some buzz. Mm -hmm. um, and then in two thousand seven, I won a Hugo, my first Hugo. Yeah. So the the that I think. That um, that sorry, three year period established me as uh, what my agent euphemistically refers to as, as sadly and euphemistically refers to as a critical darling. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only really in the last two or three years that I've started having some real commercial success with the Eternal Sky books and mm -hmm. Memory. Uh, the Jenny Casey books did very well for me, and then instead of writing more Jenny Casey books, I went off and wrote other things and got sort of scattered into various subgenres, um, which meant that I sort of established a small core readership and then everybody else was like, we don't know who the hell this person is or what she thinks she's doing. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want more serious books. So it, it worked out well for me critically, but not so well... Uh, is it because you just couldn't help yourself? To sort of, you know, you're like, you, you're interested in writing this or this? Short or? attention span. Really short <laughs> attention span. Like three books is all I can manage and then I'm done with these people. <laughs> genre move along. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Scott, you had a pretty good reception for Lives of Walking Mora. Oh, I blurred his first novel. You did. Oh, cool. you did. Long, long before we knew each other. Long before it was nepotism. It was pre-nepotism. I had sold Lies um, when it was in an unfinished state in, in uh, autumn 2004 and uh, finished and delivered it in 2005 and it was published in 2006. So I've I've been at this for nine years mm. now. Although I've also been a professional writer for you know uh, going on 11 years. Um, good God, just finished up with 11 years because 
on that advance, um, which was more money than I'd ever seen in the entire world, mm. Um, mm. you know, I was able to, I was literally living in my parents' basement. I mean, it doesn't get any more cliched. <laughs> um, me and my little brother had moved home for it's a couple It's a very months. nice basement. It is. It's, it's, it's a finished nice. basement. It's right back where I was in high school. Um, one of my, my younger brothers had come home for a couple of months um, after finishing his course in radiology, and he was going to move on to his internships and so on and so forth, and he needed some space to decompress, and I needed to not be in a living situation I'd been in for a couple of years. And um, completely by accident, I sold you know, a pair of novels to Simon Spann and Galantz, and um, you know, went on from there. And Lies, um, Lies received a fairly um, significant amount of attention. I mean, mm-hmm. this sounds horribly egotistical to me. Um, but you know, I mean, you guys were there. You can you can verify no, yeah. all this. Um, it was uh, it, it was at the time I, I'm told the biggest fantasy release that Galantz had ever done, and I'm pretty sure that's been exceeded since. I mean, they, they've got um, Brandon Sanderson, they've got mm-hmm. uh, Joe Abercrombie, but I mean, it, well, for a debut, I mean, back in 2006, it, it did not do too shabbily. Um, and uh, then it, it uh, you know it. It, it garnered attention because it, it was it was one of those books that is the first in a series, but does not actually directly require a sequel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made me briefly interesting to you know critical forces in and outside the genre that um, that look upon series writers as anathema. And then once it became clear that that, that was a damn dirty series writer after all, that the blush was off that road, <laughs> and you know down I went in flames. But um, I lost two locus. Uh, I've lost two locus awards. I've lost uh, a world fantasy award, and and I lost two Campbell awards. We um, recently lost a lost a locus award to the same person. Yes, yes, we did. Yes. it's okay. We still like her. My best friend. Um, Kathy by the way, you were also yes. a, you were also a finalist for the Crawford Award that year. So. I, I was. I was a finalist for the Crawford Award. I did win a British Fantasy Award, and it is one of the best little statuettes in the history of Those genre. Cool. Awards, so at least I've got that going for me. Um, so not not a total loser. Um, but no, I mean, Lies was very, very nicely treated right from the get go, and Galantz worked very hard to position it. Um, in an enticing fashion, I, I don't want to say dishonest fashion. Dishonest is way too harsh a word. Um, they, they, they wanted to position it in an enticing fashion to people who, let us say, were only peripherally fantasy readers. They wanted to pitch it um, to the market that was traditionally crime and historical drama oriented. Mm-hmm. That's why the original edition of Lies had that um, you know Venetian St. Mark Square cover, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the outward trappings of fantasy just were not. I mean, that's a that's that's a British you know market sensibility in general. It, it's been mitigated a little more recently, but back then, whoa. Um, that, that sort of genre minimalism, you know, no flaming swords, no mightily feud barbarians, um, mm. just, you know, an, an elegant cover that could be anything in any genre. And they, 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 they pitched it to people in the interest of hooking them before they realized they were reading a sword and sorcery novel. And that also seems to have worked because it, it garnered a fairly significant, um, well, based on the, the emails I've received over the years, um, number of people who had uh, wandered out of fantasy or had never read fantasy and didn't realize they were reading fantasy until, you know, the secondary world elements became too obvious in, in the book. So, yeah, I mean, Lies had a very nice reception. Well, when you talk about sword and sorcery, there's a that's an interesting tradition because it's amazing. Whenever we talk to almost any fantasy writer, at some point we're back to f- talking about Fritz Leiber. And we can do that now. We can do that <laughs> now. <laughs> One of the things... Look, unless you slept with him, it doesn't count. We've had someone on the podcast this weekend who slept with him. Mm-hmm. So I know I have never slept. With, I've slept with a Fritz Leiber book on my face. Oh yes, yes, more than once. I, I know a guy. <laughs> 
TMI, sweetie. T- no. Wait, you hear reading and the book gets closer <laughs> yes. and closer. Yes. Yeah, you wake up with newsprint on your nose. I yes. know a guy who talked to Leinberg for three hours shortly before his death in the early 90s. So that's that's my... Yeah. I'm two degrees removed from Fritz Leinberg. I've met him a couple of times, but the point I was making is... And one of the things he did, which both of you actually do well, is, 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 is a certain amount of humor and tricksterism and playfulness, which... I'll, there's a there's a sword and sorcery fantasy tradition which seems to have forgotten that, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe that's the tradition that derives more from Robert E. Howard, who didn't have a sense of humor, or if he did, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> if he if he did, he wasn't aware of it. Uh, but but there's a there's that element of tricksterism and playfulness that uh, was really part of the Fox and the Grey Mouser series, and you, you can oh, see that. I see it in your work. You can see it in Joanna Russell's work, for heaven's sake. Yeah, oh, but God, you, you, the, the you, you tore that right stuff. out of my head. Oh. I mean, jo- the fact that Joanna Russ had this really wicked sense of humor and wanted to dance around in the, in the sword and sorcery sandbox is, you know, largely lost. Um, to the mists of history. Yeah, well, Fofford and the Grey Mousers show up in the adventures of Alex, and Alex shows up in one of the Fofford mm-hmm. and Grey Mouser stories. So, um, so I got to give a, a certain modern fantasist whose name rhymes with Bot Skitch his <laughs> first Roger Zelazny novel. I actually handed him a copy of Nine Princes. No, 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 there you go. Hold on, okay. So, well, okay, what, one modification to oh, this. Oh, okay. I had previously read, uh, because... Oh, what, what I, in my misspent youth, I, I evolved with what, what I called my five-year plan, which was between 2002 and 2007-ish. Um, I, I set out to read every novel that had ever won the uh, Hugo Nebula World Fantasy, Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the Tip Tree Award, and I got like 98% of them. This is how you turn into Scott Lynch. Um, so, I mean, so that's what I was doing for the couple of years right before I, I, I wrote um, Lies. Um, I was slowly going mad from the sheer volume of novels I was intending. Mm-hmm. So I had read Lord of Light, and I'd read some of his short fiction, like uh, Doors of His Face, Lamps of His mm-hmm. Mouth, but I had not consciously read Zelazny in, in the way that, I mean, when, when you read, like, Jack of Shadows, Chronicles of Amber, you are mm-hmm. being... Zelazny at his most Zelazny as Right, so I, I handed him Nine Princes and Amber and I handed him Jack of Shadows. Mm-hmm. Like, Would you like to know where your artistic sense yeah, right. <laughs> 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 of Because he read, he read Bruce. Ah, oh, okay, of he course. He read yeah. Steve Bruce. Yeah. And of course, Bruce is picked up a lot of his tricks from Zelazny sure. and Zelazny picked up a lot of his tricks from Liber. And th- that's where that I, I think that entire So you're aware of that genealogy yeah, because Daddy, I absolutely Daddy, exactly. And it's like the the uh, I'm actually writing the the um, the second Eternal Sky trilogy, mm-hmm. which I have a draft of the first book done, is a very conscious homage to Fritz Leiber, and it uh, it stars the uh, two characters who originally made their appearance in a short story. Published by a certain Jonathan Strand ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, about two years ago. So those guys are, are back, and they have a novel now, and they're very, they're very yeah. lively. Yeah, if you, uh, I mean, if, if you want to write rogues and thieves, I mean, sooner or later, if, if, if you want to dance yeah. this dance in the genre, you're going to have to get in the ring with the ghost of Fofford and the Great Mouse. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys literally stole a house. And I say or, or literally in, a, in their fictitious world, but they robbed a dude's house. <laughs> they moved it. They stole it one night. Um, and that's that's where right. um, a year and a day in old Theradine came from. My story, in which uh-huh. a bunch of thieves steal the street. But also, the, just the bantery, lighthearted, you know, just just that that way the, the narrative works, where they're they're mm-hmm. bantering, they're playful, they're playful with one another. Right. Is it a kind of fantasy that rejects nihilism? That it actually has has a faith and warmth in its characters. 
Well, it's not grimdark. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some of the some of the Fafford stories are really mm-hmm. grim. Like some of yeah. flat out horror. Where did you move from that 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 inherent sense of doom that you know that that sort of Nordic flavor of fantasy that you know the doom is upon us and always the, the, has the, been the, the, yeah. the Paul Anderson thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and then move into something more lighthearted and banter. I mean, Fafford and the Mouser are you know two halves of the same soul. You know, the the, the icy half and the fiery half. I mean, if you want to put it really really simply. Um, and I, I still love Farford for being a feminist. Possibly <laughs> 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 <That's what laughs> the first feminist in fantasy. Uh-huh. I mean, which is something that comes as a shock to a lot of younger feminist readers, because if you if you come in through that door, if you come in through the the door of Wiscon, Fritz Leiber is not going to be on the reading list that you're handed, unless you're talking to people who are who are part of that generation. Like we were talking to Quinn Yarbrough, for example, of course, who who, who grew up with that sort of thing, and, and Susie Charnas did so. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's an enormous kickback, particularly in social media, about mm-hmm. against the idea that you should read things, that you mm-hmm. ought to, that you have to. And I understand why, and I'm sympathetic to it. But listening to you, it, it seems you both have a real appreciation for the value of understanding the history of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you bring to all of the stuff you're working with? I'm a I'm a third gen I'm a weirdo. I'm a third generation science fiction fan on both sides. Wow. Yeah. Both of my parents were science fiction and fantasy fans, and both of my grandfathers were. And so I had one grandfather who loved Heinlein, and the other one loved Howard. And then my dad is like a huge Jack Vance fan, mm. and my mom loved Joanna Russ and Chip Delaney, mm. and so I, I'm what happens when you give an eight year old. When it changed, <laughs> and Ursula Le Guin. This is it's, it's you wind up a little alienated, and it's difficult to make friends in high school. But it turns out okay in the end. Um, so I I came in with with a lot of that background reading. Mm-hmm. I haven't done what Scott did and intensively sat down and intentionally read all of the classics. I just got and I was a, a, um, a an early reader, and so I read everything in the house the way kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I integrated it. You know, I was reading Frederick Paul and, and, and uh, uh, Susan McKee Charnas simultaneously in fifth grade, yeah. which makes you weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, but yeah, I, I feel like there is a lot of value in that stuff. And, and uh, it may be harder for people who hit it in their 20s to, to, to read it. I feel like some of them may... I, I mean, I don't think people should be forced to read, eat their vegetables and read things that they find. Well, that's hard. the problem. Yeah. That's, the, yeah, that's the issue that comes up again and again on, the, on this yeah. podcast. Is on the one hand, there's a huge value in this. On the other hand, you don't want to have you don't want to stand at the gates of fantasy and say you have to have read these fifty no, books. Because that, I mean, that, that's the approach that, that convinces you know millions of high school students every year that they hate literature. Exactly. And that they exactly. Want to pick up a book I, I, I think a lot of the younger younger readers will probably come back to it later on in life, like wanting to mm-hmm. know where the stuff came from. Um, it's uh, you know, it's frustrating. Also, you know, ha- ha- trying to have <laughs> conversations um, about um, you know trends in, in the genre. Um, and you know it trends in its its you know social constructs and its social realities mm-hmm. um, to deal with and how can I put this as kindly as possible? Um, incredibly enthusiastic, well-meaning people whose depth of field is about three to five years ago, to whom the genre effectively does not exist prior to say 2010, and who, who you know with with the best of intentions say things like, "When are we going to get this? When are we going to see this?" And you have to say, "Well, you know, well, C.S. Friedman was doing this. C.J. Cherry was doing this. And, you know, John Brunner and, and you know Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler and Joanna Ross." And, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And I, I want to have the conversations where when somebody walks up to me and says, you know, oh my God, have you read The Girl with All the Gifts? It's such a great book. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's really interesting how it's in conversation with Children of the Thunder and Childhood Sound. <laughs> yeah, right. And they give me this look. And I'm like, but we'll have this conversation again in 15 years. Yeah, I know. But one of the things that's interesting to me when you talk to younger writers is that there's a lot more... So- First of all, people who didn't grow up like you did, did with, with three generations of science fiction readers, form their own kind of personal um, background reading. We, I was talking to Lily Yu, for example, and she turned out to be a fan of George MacDonald's children's books. And <laughs> normally you just wouldn't make that connection. Or Zen Cho, you know, was reading P.G. Woodhouse. And P.G. Woodhouse is working his way into fantasy these mm-hmm. days. In other words, there seems to be a lot more openness to bringing in more than one tradition. I mean, there's certainly there's certainly Tolkien, there's certainly Liber, there's Howard, there's Lovecraft. We can talk about him in a minute. Um, but now you're finding writers who have read all kinds of different things. And if you bring, you know, well, I guess you have to give Terry Pratchett first crack at that, but if you're going to bring P.G. Woodhouse into fantasy, it's about time. Uh, and it's, think about how few people, now I, there are reasons for not trying to write like Terry Pratchett. But nevertheless... <laughs> Many have tried and failed. I know. And, 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 and a lot of humorous fantasy has really not aged well. Uh, but that, when it does age well, it's really good and it stays alive for generations later. Mm-hmm. There's still some great... I, I've been rereading a little bit of Elspreg de Camp. Some of the... Yeah, so the Incomplete like, Enchanter? Yeah. But the ending of that is terrible, well, sadly. But... Um, like some of his short fiction, A Gun for Dinosaur, mm-hmm. I think, is, is still an amazing story. And, yeah. I, you know, that um, has a great title. But, and it, it, it's semi-humorous fantasy. It's, it's ha-ha mm-hmm. only serious fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's situationally humorous rather than slapstick. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is a difficult thing to do, but it's, it's, it's the lasting mm-hmm. thing to do. You know, there, there, there are visual comedies from, you know, the 30s or 40s, you know, old sitcoms that, that are still watchable because... They're not predicated on the lingo or the events of the time. They're not cultural right. references. Mm-hmm. And the problem—I mean, the problem is that a lot of cultural references wind up not aging well because, in in, in the, the stark light of history, they wind up looking a little racist, or you know, or the context is just yeah. completely vanished. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Although bringing up, you know, the, the bringing up baby. I was gonna. I was yeah. gonna. I mentioned Howard Hawks, and I was gonna mention the Thin Man uh, mm-hmm. uh, because you've got that, that's completely interpersonal, generally. Uh, and, and bringing up baby, I don't think it has too many cultural references no. that are outdated at all. It's almost a mythic kind of space that it takes place yeah. in, uh, and and that kind of thing still, when it shows up, is is a healthy sign. But I was getting back to, to in, in both of your works. There's there's a substantial amount of humor, and one of the things that, uh, speaking as an academic, uh, sometimes keeps us away from. From fantasy, apart from the fact that okay, I want to read this writer, but you have to read ten volumes of fifteen hundred pages each before <laughs> before you're at part two of the trilogy. Um, is that some of the stuff is not it's not just the grimdark stuff because the grimdark stuff has its own aesthetic and it's and, and, and the darkest Abercrombie stuff is genuinely dark and genuinely disturbing in a way that he means to be. What bothers me is the plotting, humorless, stalwart epics that are just you know. Uh, 
Working with the sensibility of, of really gothy 15-year-olds. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the human yeah. warmth and dialogue skill of George Lucas at his very best. <laughs> I, I, I think that the records show that, that Jonathan just okay. got up and just no, 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 no. <laughs> I think actually referring to the, you know, the really gothy 15-year-old is really interesting and well, salient. Well, was the really gothy 15-year-old. Well, but, but also most of us at some point, in, inside at least, were, right? Yeah. And yeah. I'm thinking about uh, cuts to Tom, Tom's Covenant, the Stephen Dawson. Steve right. Books, yes. which I believe are written perfectly for gloomy 15 oh, and 16 year olds so and are of no value to anyone else in the world <laughs> oh <laughs> well okay what, what I really, no what I really I mean is Steve, I can't imagine someone the first who's half of that remark but <laughs> no no what I mean is I, I mean okay I read the first five books of the Covenant series in a weekend right so it was one of those, those things you, you know, five o'clock on Friday evening you went started to read the book and then it was like, oh my god, it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm reading the next one, and the next one, oh, I'll go to sleep. No, you wake up, pick up the book, and just consume it. I don't know that an older, more experienced reader coming to it necessarily would, would first of all, do that, but would also respond to the kind of gloomy, self-hating kind of character quite as well. And it really is that sort of a thing. Well, some, some, some novels, you, you, they're, they're, you know, they're... Two, two things that I, I like to two categories that I like to use are some novels need to for, for ideal effect need to be approached when the reader is of a certain age sure um, and you know Covenant mm-hmm. may well be one of those um, another often cited example is uh, Catcher in the Rye yeah. um, which is you know I, I did not actually read when I was in high school and attempting to get into it when you are out of high school um, I mean you, you will probably bounce off it um, and so it's, it's very weird to me I never interacted with this as a narrative artifact um some novels must be interacted with when they are new to the world, if that makes yes. sense. And I think that the Covenant books, like my, my buddy mm-hmm. Matt Stover, Matthew Woodring Stover, mm-hmm. who's kind of like the closest thing I have to a mentor figure, um, was, I mean, he was shaped by the Covenant books. They were essential to him. And I came along, you know, 20, 25 years later and, you know, read about 80 pages of it, really liked it up to a certain point and then bounced hard and did not have the same formative, penetrating sort of, you know... It, I, but the thing is, I, I didn't feel that I was getting anything out of it that I had not known was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Whereas, when, I mean, when those were new, the, the thing I hear from a lot of older readers and writers is, oh man, when those things were new, they were like nothing else on the block. Mm-hmm. They were like no experience then available. That's true. War for the Oaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. War for the Oaks. It was yeah, yes. so seminal that there are now, and there's an entire subgenre yeah, devoted uh, yeah. to copying War <laughs> for the Oaks. And you, you hand it to somebody in their 20s and they're like I've read all this before yeah. I'm like yes you have now uh-huh. look at the copyright date yes. yeah. but, <laughs> but the problem is they don't then they can't appreciate yeah, exactly. what, what that is because they still think well that's a nice intellectual thing to know but yeah exactly yeah, sorry throw it away but um, it's so nice to be the yeah. podcast where you guys sound older than I do <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, mean, I was hanging out with his dad in, 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 in Fritz Leiber Eight or eighty nine when I read War for the Oaks, it blew the top of my head off. Yeah. I just I just went back and reread Snow Crash. I've actually figured Snow Crash made me figure out something really cool. Ah. Okay, so I read Snow Crash when it was new to the world. It was just out. Everybody in my college science fiction society was a Twitter over this book and we and it blew the top of my head off, Mm -hmm. right? Um and I just recently reread, went back and reread it a couple of years ago, and what I realized was, you know, John Clute's thing about the real year of a yeah, book. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. The real year of Snow Crash is like 1991, but it came out in 
1991. And that's why it mm. feels uh-huh. so freaking bleeding edge. Is because it, it is set in a future that feels like the present instead of being set in a future that feels like 10 or 15 years ago. Well, the recent future is a phrase I think of Bruce Sterling yeah. used about it. Maybe Sterling Zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. It was a science fiction novel which was set in ni- published in 2001 and set in 1999. Mm-hmm. But it's science fiction in the same way Bill Gibson is that it's yeah. just it's just stuff you don't know yet, and therefore, <laughs> from your perspective, it's, right. it's speculative. It's but uh, but uh, and, and, and Gibson is well aware of that. He's he's well aware of being the best cool hunter in the world. I was, oh, yeah. I was there slobbering, slobbering cyberpunk, cyberpunk nut when I was uh, when I was a teenager. Like when I was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, my, my teenage years are kind of bookended with you know Gibson and Cadigan. And Rucker on one end, and then Sterling uh, four or five years later is when I read okay. all of his stuff. And then right there in the middle was Snow Crash in particular. I mean, like I said, I was fifteen. Reading Snow Crash was better than losing my virginity. It well, was. I mean, it was just. See, for me, that was that was Walter John Williams Hardwired. <laughs> Which, okay. The book that, that made me. I I didn't read until like five years ago. But damn, if I read it when I was a teenager. I, okay, it's uh-huh. a, it's an awesome book. But but my 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 elderly self and my teenage self would have would have loved it equally. I wish. I wish I'd read it as a kid. So how and why did Hardwired build you as a writer? Okay, so so I, I, I often say that the book that actually made me want to be a writer was The Last Unicorn, mm-hmm. because that, that thing that Peter Beagle does where he has you laughing at the top of the page and then mm-hmm. crying at the bottom, mm-hmm. literally, and it's the same scene and right. nothing has happened except your perspective has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, I want to... I want to do that to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hardwired just shaped my sensibilities somehow. I, I don't think there would be, there would not be a Jenny Casey trilogy without um, without Hardwired, uh, without um, uh, John Varley's Titan books, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, without uh, Down Below Station, mm-hmm. CJ Cherry's Down Below Station. Uh, those Those three things just completely created the sensibility that, that for me the Jenny Casey books arose out of and um, you know it was just hugely formative that's really too. impressive that you, you can identify that well you know I, I, I also totally admit that Blood and Iron is Emma Bull Pamela Dean fanfic well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up front about that one um, okay can Scott can you name three books that did the same thing to you oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I was I was essentially built by uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which mm-hmm. I, was, I was also a teenage Dune obsessive. I must have read it mm-hmm. eight or nine times in high school. Um, I, I've, I've read everything Frank Herbert ever published. I hero-worshipped him as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I was very disappointed to discover he died when I was eight. Um, because he, he's my, my canonical, you know, who would you have dinner with, anyone mm-hmm. from out of time or space. Um, Frank Herbert's Dune in- inspired me it, with, with the notion of world-building. Um, Gibson's Neuromancer was really the first time I became aware of the possibilities of atmosphere um, mm-hmm. in the narrative medium. Um, I mean, just the, the, that incredible sense of nostalgia for a, a future that, you know, will never happen. That sense of having been mm-hmm. there and wanting to go back in the whole Sprawl trilogy. Um, and then, um, last but not least, was Ray Feist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, weird, weird company to keep with those. Feist was my major introduction to the whole concept of epic fantasy. I read Tolkien, mm-hmm. um, and uh, my, my, my high school game buddies were trying to get me into R.A. Salvatore and some other stuff. But I was kind of a science fiction snob in my early teen years, um, <laughs> up, up to a certain point. And a, a friend of mine um, randomly walked up to me in the hallway at school one day and handed me Ray Feist's Magician, or I should say uh, Magician Apprentice, the paperback um, first half of his mm-hmm. first novel. 
and um, said, dude, read this. And you know, just <laughs> a totally unprompted. And I'm like, what? What? This is fantasy. I don't really read that. And he, he walked away and would not take the book back. And he said, dude, just read it. And, and so I shouted after him, you know, I, I'm not going to read this. This is fantasy. So long story short, next day I was at Barnes & Noble buying, you know, book two, book three, book four. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Feist really inculcated um, my, my nascent love of all the things I write about now. You know, essentially, you know, people in cloaks running across rooftops in the rain, breaking into places, <laughs> fighting the rapiers. I mean, all all the wonderful genre baggage that that uh, you know Stephen Bruce cool shit theory of literature. Yeah. You cram as much cool shit right, as exactly. you possibly can. Um, basically, that that's where I got my world building, my atmosphere, and, and, and my, my sense of direction. Because once I read Feist, I didn't want to write anything but fantasy for a while. Um, I'm, I'm slipping back towards science fiction now, but you know, I well, became a damn dirty fantasist. <laughs> well, sorry, I was just going to uh, parenthesis to that because if you started out with Dune, I don't know if you've reread it lately at all. Oh yeah, I reread but it. But there, there are there's a generation now that reads Dune as a fantasy series. Hmm. Uh, essentially, all the details and there's enough space, at least in the original trilogy. After that, it gets problematical. Uh, there's enough space for. Herbert to work out all his ecological business in the still suits, and he works out the you know biology of the sandworms and that sort of thing. But essentially, you've got an epic fantasy in the desert, uh, which which works as well as Lawrence of Arabia as it does as, as hard SF. And uh, and yeah, I think he was well aware of that. And the, the other thing which I thought was interesting about Herbert was that he wanted to use. Uh, Philosophy. He wanted to use Carl Jaspers as a, and so you, you you can't figure out unless you've been reading Carl Jaspers, you don't realize the philosophical background mm-hmm. of these things. So uh, I think that some kinds of epic science fiction uh, that had the trappings of epic fantasy get read that way now. And I, I I know some readers who started with Dune and went straight from Dune into into epic fantasy rather than into Herbert's other work, which of course isn't anything like Dune. It's a it's it's a good primer for uh, the, I mean the, the the feel the atmosphere the sensibilities of epic fantasy and it, it manages to have its cake and eat it too yeah. because the, the curious thing about Dune is what a thin document it really is Dune feels about nine miles wide but it's only about four hundred pages or so mm-hmm. um, and it it, it, get, it squeezes this mileage out of itself by putting its gigantic glossary which is like a secondary you know textbook in and of mm-hmm. itself it, by by the simple expedient of putting it in the back of the book rather than the front of the book. I think that's true, but I think the other thing that's true that makes June seem so enormous is where it sits chronologically in the history of the genre. I mean, if you look at it when June came out in what sixty-five, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would have read it in the early to mid seventies or whatever else. There were no fat books in the, mm-hmm. out yeah. there at all. I mean, a four hundred page science fiction fantasy novel was a nine hundred page science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy novel. Now it's almost a novella, you know. Yeah. Which is sort of semi-inside. Mm-hmm. A stranger in a strange land that was four years earlier. Yeah, yeah. But that was that wasn't even part of science fiction. That was part of Heinlein by then. It was almost something separate. Yeah. I'm curious. Were you both gamers or had? Were, yeah. you know, oh hell yeah! <laughs> because I mean, when I think about Feist, which who I read in his mm-hmm. striking short declarative sentences, mm-hmm. um, it was. I mean, my recollection is that Midkemia was a role-playing game to start off with. Yeah, it so was. It grew out of that. Did that influence you both strongly in how you approach telling stories? Um, actually, it did uh, for for me because um, it, I was I was you know the girl who gamed in mm. high school, and then I got mm. to college and there were other women doing it. And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm not the only one. Um, 
But because I was the girl who gamed, if I wanted to game, I had to run games. I had to be the game master. Mm, yeah. uh, because nobody would invite me to play, so I had to like go out and you know I had to hunt and kill my own gaming group, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, yeah, there, there's, there's a subcategory or a subculture of two or three of my friends who describe themselves as the Anita Sarkeesian of their school. <laughs> yeah, basically. I, I actually started the... the I was the first pre- founding president of my uh, uh, high school uh, gaming role-playing game, tabletop role-playing mm-hmm. game club, and it is still in existence to wow. this day. Yeah, it has a yearbook photo. Yes. You're like in a cloak made from a bedsheet. Yeah, basically. <laughs> no, it was an actual cloak. An actual cloak. It had a fake fur collar. See, and my, moth holes. My, 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 my first <laughs> elder cloak as a gamer was literally like one of my mom's yeah. bed sheets safety pinned around my neck. Yeah. Um, I think g- but, gaming taught me... Well, how hang to, on, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, so the, oh. The, um, but, the, but the thing that it taught me as a writer was po- what, what we what we refer to as professionally as positional plotting, but I didn't know that, uh-huh. that terminology at the time. The idea that if you have characters who have goals and you have other characters who have goals that are in direct opposition to those goals, plot is an emergent property of both of those groups of people trying to get their stuff together. And that makes sense. The the difference between me as a writer and me as a game master is that when I'm a game master I only have to be the reactive portion of this equation. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I when I'm when I'm a writer I have to be the proactive and the reactive portion of this equation. I have to I have to write both sides of the fight. I, I I heard somebody give a, a paper on this once about uh, gaming being inverted plotting to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to the extent that um, you're following rules and, and you go into a gaming world and you're having to learn what the rules are. Uh, you're writing a novel, you're having to make up the rules and then find out how the world uh, commits to that. So to some extent... Uh, everything you discover in a novel is, or a large part of what you discover in a novel, is what is really the given in the gaming world. The actual rules and the actual roles are defined largely ahead of time. But, I mean, for, so for me, uh, this actually works out really well because I don't wind up having to have characters do... I, I never have the plot in my head in such a way that the characters have to do a thing to drive the plot. Mm. It's always the characters do a thing and the plot follows the character action, which I think makes the character actions feel a little more organic. There are some writers who should remain nameless, though, who, where the gaming influence doesn't seem to work. Where you have you're in the middle of a of a, of a of a fantasy novel, and suddenly, the character is in a situation that is intractable, and they basically buy themselves some coins and game up to the next level. You can't do that in an actual narrative, you know. Yeah. To some extent, there there is that uh, the, the, the the I mean, plot. characters should improve, but you need right. to watch them. But you but, but you can't in, you can't import plot coupons from the gaming world. Uh, for a narrative that, that has to be coherent on its own terms. I guess um, what gaming did for me was, was basically teach me to be unapologetic about the things that I liked. I mean, that sounds a little melodramatic, but um, I was, you know, I was your, your fairly typical, um, you know, as I now see it, introverted, um, you know, sort, sort of closeted super nerd. Um, and I, I, I didn't have many friends, and I, didn't, I was really comfortable in my own skin until about halfway through high school. Um, because what happened halfway through high school is I met my gamer buddies, mm-hmm. and I discovered other people who wanted to play with these weird things and talk about weird books and do all this wonderful stuff. And so I discovered, you know, I, I was suddenly I, I was socialized. I, I had, you know, I knew what camaraderie was. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I had people to go see, and you know, we, we played games together all the time. Um, so it, it, it first taught me to be comfortable with liking what I liked. 
um, and and not to hide it. And I, I think if I if I'd been taught to be less forthright about um, you know all of this wonderful nerdy stuff that we love, um, you know, I, I might not have run toward uh, a career writing it um, as readily as I did. And um, it, the same kind of the same position as uh, as Bear. Um, I, I fell into the role of, of game master for my, my high school buddies, and we had these elaborate games that would go on for you know well over a hundred episodes over the course mm-hmm. of a couple of years, um, with very elaborate you know plots backward and forward in time. Um, and so it, it 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 taught me the basics of structure. Um, and it, it, it essentially taught me, um, you know, how to work in that, that epic format. Um, and interestingly enough, once I actually started writing, um, I really lost my interest in, in constructing really elaborate gaming narratives and, and came to view gaming as uh, much more of a, of a you know, light release. I'm, I'm, I'm much more into, you know, board games and, uh, you know, one-night one stance, you know, right. rather than lengthy relationships. You know, gaming as, a, hey, let's kick in the door and explore the dungeon and have some fun rather than I will build you a 90-episode narrative arc because now I get that um, from my day job. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's, not that, I've, sorry, no, it's okay. not that I've lost my taste for that. It's that I can't do both simultaneously. I can, yeah, I can either write or, or run a, or create a game. I can still run games, but mm-hmm. they have to be um, kick down the door, kill the monster, get the treasure, or yeah, modules. That's, that's or, probably much more accurate. Yeah. I still well, have do, a regular Pathfinder. Do you think that the, the, the transition that uh, or the, the gateway from gaming into literature, do you think that's as strong a, a, a passageway now as it was when you guys moved into it? It seems to be. I don't know, because it seems to me there are so many games and so many iterations of so many games, and the gaming industry in the fantasy world is larger than the fiction industry is now. Um, so many of the young writers I meet, I think gaming just permeates... It's not a nerd thing anymore. Oh, no, I know. It, it permeates the culture. But you know the people who are writers. I'm wondering about the gamers who... do. do does your average gamer out there... Because I, I'm talking about people I know who are 15 and 16... Yeah. Um, and they have no interest in reading anything at all. I, I do actually, uh, most years, I managed to get to a con called Daishokan, um, which is a, a big anime-centric con mm-hmm. in central Wisconsin. And by virtue of my relative proximity to it, um, I've been invited to it for a number of years running. I probably will make it this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, it's really weird, because I am very nearly the oldest or second oldest person there. <laughs> Other than like the creepy guy who sleeps under the dealer's table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, a con that was originally for um, college kids, run by college kids, and it's still run by largely by college kids, uh-huh. for essentially the, the 16 to 22 demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What I, I guess what I've discovered, I think, is, is kind of reassuring, which is that, um, you know, the, the old standard of, uh, you know, we, we, we grew up nerdy and absorbed in our books right. and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Well, the, these days, kids tend to grow up nerdy and absorbed in their video games. I mean, right. I, I come from a video game generation. Right. Um, I was eight when the Nintendo Entertainment System hit America. Um, I didn't have a computer for 12 years after that, but we had gaming consoles. We were video gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a normal thing. Um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the, the youths in, in 2015 with, with their beepity boops and their whatevers, um, I don't think they're necessarily coming to books at the same time in the same way that we, we once did. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, it's um, you know, something they get inculcated with at, at such an early age. But they get there eventually, you know. They hit eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Okay, they're they're yeah. in yeah. They're, they're, mm-hmm. They they work on they're working on fanfic, you know. They're, they're writing fanfic about games and movies and TV well, yeah. shows and so on and so forth. And a friend hands them a book and says, "Hey, read this. It's pretty awesome." And boom, they're into literature. Even even more than that, look at the size of the YA industry. Somebody's reading all those books, and it's not all also, also true. It's not all fifty. So that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's. 
the the I um, my mom, bless her heart, is a, is a huge Hunger Games fan. So I've been I've been taking her to the, mm-hmm. the Hunger Games movies as a um, as a, a family outing, and you know the the, the movie audience is is trends across the spectrum, but I do hear like the kids who show up mm-hmm. talking about oh in the, you know. In, is this going to be like in the book? Is it, yeah. You know, you overhear the, the chatter. And the, so, I, no, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of YA readers out there. I think they're maybe not part of the science fiction and fantasy genre conversation. Mm-hmm. But YA right now is overwhelmingly science fiction and fantasy. Oh, yeah. So I suspect that even if only 20% of them keep reading um, when they're, you know, in their 20s and 30s, um, yeah. we, we don't have a lot to worry about. But, I, I mean, I, I feel like the, the, our, our genre is going mainstream, and I actually think this is a great thing. It, it makes it easier for me to explain to family members what I do for a living. Sure. Um, I just have to tell them I don't make as much money as George Martin. There are two ways when you say going mainstream. That can mean two almost opposite yeah. things. On the, on, on the one hand, it's going mainstream because you'll have uh, Emily St. John Mandel writing a science fiction yes. novel. Yeah. and. and and not being excluded from the literary community she grew up in. On the other hand, you have George R. R. Martin, stone science fiction, you know, more loyal to the Hugo Award ceremonies than anybody in the world, the world's best world con attendee, who now happens to be the most famous writer in the world. Yeah. That's one kind of mainstream success, the, the Eden Lepuckies, the Emily St. John Mandels, Maybe even the Michael Chabons and Jonathan Lethams are over here in this literary right, mainstream. And the Neil Gaiman's, the Terry Pratchett's, so you, right. know, you, you have... Right. But the, the real mainstream change, I think, for, for genre is that the primary tropes of genre, that, you know, science fiction and fantasy, are actually genuinely mainstreamed. Right. You know, you, you don't have to... rocket ship stuff. I mean, it just doesn't exist anymore. But Everyone but knows the, what the guy at the local are. gas station, maybe, you know, isn't surprised by a multi-dimensional time-traveling narrative and is wondering what the hell is going on. Yeah. It's no, like, oh, yeah. Th- everybody watches Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, or Star Trek, or whatever else it might be, and it's the, um, the the parallel phenomenon too. I mean, to the YA phenomenon. I mean, this and this is um, for, for the most part also, uh, at least over in, in the UK, heavily gendered. Um, and something my editors have been lamenting: it's that the, the egg they cannot crack for years and years and years is that you've got stuff like Games Workshop. Um, you know, Games Workshop with its various Warhammer properties puts out an entire periphery of tie-in novels. Um, that that you know sell like hotcakes that are the equivalent of a YA industry. Um, that you know, these are chock full of genre tropes. They are just not part of our ongoing you know what we consider the genre conversation. And my editors are beside themselves with their inability to convince you know every year tens or hundreds of thousands of, of you know British kids with money to burn to how to transition them um, from. You know, Warhammer novels to you know something like Ian McDonald, or you know, mm-hmm. how, how do you how do you get them to jump to the, the bigger, broader world of science fiction when they already they already like spaceships and powered armor and lasers? I mean, they're they're primed, they're ready. Um, you know, it's a, how do you make how, how do you get the the part, of, part, part of what I've heard about that from from the perspective of, of, of some of the same British publishers you probably talked to is that that specific franchise is. So legalistic and so possessive, they don't want. They they want to contain the, re, the, the 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 audience they have. They don't want anybody outside of the this universe to even write about space marines, for example. They they, they want to own the world. Yeah, but, but you're talking about the audience, though. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of 
I'm talking about the corporatization of a certain kind of fantasy True. that I wants know. to trap the audience into its franchise. They're, they're not exactly eager to say, if you liked our, our, our you know, Warhammer 40K, you will probably all also like blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Blah. But, but they also, sorry. They want the epistemic bubble to stay totally right. closed exactly. to clear your money. I feel like you could probably, on an individual case-by-case basis, keep throwing David Drake novels at them until one sticks. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> well, you, you could. But, I mean, obviously the great technique they're using to, to keep their audience is to produce so much material right. that there's no time to, to, to investigate mm-hmm. anybody else's, yeah. really. I'm curious, with gaming... You've both been very active readers. You've had your imaginations filled by the stories you've read. Did gaming, though, give you the tools to tell stories? You know, like, give you experience in building plot, building worlds yourselves, building characters to run three people through? I wanted to be a writer before I was a gamer, so I think it went the other way for me, other than the specific learning to plot through character interaction Mm -hmm. thing. Um, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer before I had the chance to actually start gaming, but I mean... What I did, um, you know, the, the kind of games that me and my friends played, I mean, they were useful training in many respects. Right. I mean, it wasn't like I came out of that experience being able to, you know, write long works. But yeah. Tell them about the stuffed animals, Scott. Okay, when I was a child, um, okay, when I was a much smaller child than I now am, <laughs> um, me, me and my, my, my two brothers, uh, we had a, a vast quantity of stuffed animals. Um, I had about 40 or 50 under my bed, and they had, you know, we, we, we had all, all kinds of them. And um, I built political divisions for these stuffed animals. I, 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 I built this, um, we, 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 I had Animal Land, which was uh, all-inclusive, all <laughs> animals. Um, and the president of Animal Land was, was my beagle, Henry. I still have Henry at home. Henry has been in the family now for nearly 40 years. Um, my brothers had Bearland and Deerland and Dogland and Catland, and then there was an evil nation made up of all my green uh, toy soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, Quinsonia, that's who they were. So we had these weird, gigantic, real politic, uh, you know, like reflections of the news stories of the 1980s. Um, you know, skirmishes and brush fire wars and political machinations between these stuffed reindeer and dogs and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was never a normal kid in any this, sense of the word. This I mean, makes your, your basement sound like some demented, crushed <laughs> away version of the Bronte family on some... Yes, Bronte is with their fantasy landscape. Yes. Um, and and I, I've always meant to go back and do something with this as an adult. You know, I think writing about a kid who has this sort of rich inner life. I, I was the quintessential kid with a rich inner life. Um, <laughs> you know, I think building political identities for a hundred different stuffed animals, um, you know, down to like actual political parties and, and their wars, um, probably qualifies as, as yeah. rich inner life. I, I did the same thing, only I did it with briar horses. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, yes. I you had, you I were had, the original My Little Pony. My Little Pony. Yeah, I knew we were going to get that. Were, this was before My Little Pony. I'm too old oh, for okay. My Little Pony. Uh, they, were, they were just like starting to be a thing as I was getting too old to play with plastic horses. So, and now that I've dated myself, taken myself out for a nice dinner and a movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, had, I had a bunch of these briar plastic horses, some of which I had inherited from my mom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then I had. And, and they had they had a political structure and they had I mean there were there was it was a soap opera yeah. it was it was Game of Thrones with horses you know mm-hmm. and, and very very bloody like dog eat dog or horse eat horse kind of hmm uh, you really were the first non male brony. You, you, you I was going to say the same thing. Time. I thought I'd get in trouble. <laughs> <if> I said <laughs> the damnest things with, with, with Brony fandom. 
And I was the same way with my with my GI Joes. All, all my GI Joe figures when I was a kid. You know, I, it was it was never like the rousing adventure that everyone comes home from. My GI Joe figures. I mean, I'd spend whole afternoons constructing these. You know, freaking uh, you know Jacobian revenge tragedies. Um, you know. I, after after you know hours of betrayal and, and savage turnabouts and, and you know bloody conflict, one GI Joe figure would be left holding you know the body of his, his last buddy in his arms. I will carry on in your name, Snake Eyes. And, and, you know, and, and it was you know, fucking Macbeth with with GI Joe figures. I mean, so now you know where I came from. But you, readers but, of my books are okay, like, aha, I think makes I was, sense. I was heavily influenced by by C.S. Lewis and by by Richard Adams. I read I read. Yes. Uh, Watership Down was mm-hmm. my first adult book, and I read yeah. it as an impressionable, read it at an impressionable age, and uh, so the so the whole like the noble self sacrifice, you know, Hazel. I mean mm-hmm. to this big wake. Oh my god, my chief rabbit told me to hold yeah. this run. That is my life motto, man. <laughs> I, I saw the cartoon when to I was... To this day, I get verklempt. I mean, oh when, I, when I was five or six. And I think it fucked me up, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, it just... You know, so, so I think all of my little horse stories were heavily influenced by... Um, by, 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 yeah, a little too Watership much. And, yeah, yeah but, Watership but, Down and, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But, Scott, you mentioned something which I've never heard anybody mention in describing these sort of perverted childhoods that we all have. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that you were connecting this to actual news events uh, in, in the 1980s? Oh, in the well, you know, I, 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 was, okay, I would read the newspaper, and I was, I was as a little kid, I was a big military history, military oh. you know, equipment buff, and this was, you know, the, 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 the twilight of the Cold War with, you know, ostensibly the danger had, had, had passed, but, you know, the U.S. The Soviet Union were still going at it in various ways, um, and so I was I was constantly you know the, the later years of Reagan's America. Um, but that's right. But that's the, so often. I mean, almost every time you hear the story, it's completely divorced from events in the outside world. Oh, and so yeah. to bring them in, I mean, you've got your stuffed bears are invading Grenada. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I was um, I was I also a hostage crisis. Okay, well that could be. Yeah. I, I was I was heavily plugged in. I was I was a big Doonesbury fan, and I was I was ah. a big Bloom County fan. I, I was also these are the years I wanted to be a cartoonist as well. Uh-huh. That was one of my childhood ambitions. Um, and so I would devour collections of Doonesbury and have no fucking clue what these these were references <laughs> to. I would just I would just parrot these these you know political and cultural references mm-hmm. from you know five, ten, fifteen years earlier. Actually, I I bet that has a lot to do with it because the the, the seventies and eighties were the heyday of the awesome you know like comet page political cartoon mm. with with that's true mm-hmm. Berkeley Doosbury and Bloom County and yeah. I, you know I, I mean basically. Um, yeah, I read the editorial page every day. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. the, uh, the editorial cartoonist for the St. Paul Pioneer Press Dispatch was a guy named Jerry Faring. And um, when, when, I, when I was eight or nine, I, I sent one of those letters to, the, to the, uh, the editors of the Pioneer Press Dispatch with some of my cartoons on mm-hmm. pencil, you know, uh, you know, on notebook paper and pencil, you know, mm-hmm. how do I become an editorial cartoonist? And I got a series of letters, you know, first from the, the one editor said, um, you seem like a nice kid, I'm passing the buck to my assistant. I got a letter from the assistant saying, you seem like a nice kid, I'm passing the buck to our cartoonist. And then I got this big letter from Jerry Faring, the actual honest-to-God editorial cartoonist, who, you know, said, you seem like a nice kid, here's a caricature of yourself, gave me advice on, Uh you know, first off, you should work in ink and don't work on notebook paper, and, you know, gave me contact information for the National Cartoonist Society and some other stuff. Gave me one of those formative letters. Mm -hmm. Um, And it unfortunately passed away a couple years ago, but he, he was... Probably Minnesota's premier political cartoonist for the better part of three decades. 
Um, and, and he was my good, close, personal buddy. I still have those letters. I guess growing up there, you have to, I have to ask you if Garrison Keillor was part of your childhood. Uh, Lake Wolf, okay, I have, I have uh, friends' parents who, who were gigantic listeners of, of you know, the, uh, his radio program. Very Home Companion. Home Companion. And um, I, I, I'd read articles by him, and I, I kind of peripherally get it, but I did not actually sink into uh, any, any Gerson Keeler fandom. What about the Coen Brothers? Oh, I, l- I fucking <laughs> love Coen Brothers movies. I'm, I'm, I am nuts for Coen Brothers movies. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm totally looking forward to their new one coming out is Hail Caesar. But yeah, right, that's everything of that. Every, everything back to to Blood Simple. I've seen Fargo at least ninety eight times. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a gigantic fan of nearly everything they've ever done. I mean, even a, even a mediocre or a lesser Coen Brothers movie is still you know mm-hmm. well worth. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I'm trying not to geek out. Here, but, um, <laughs> did you see Bridge of Spies? Um, we, we, we just did. Okay, uh, just last week. It's fun to see the Coen Brothers in that. Yes, even though they yes. didn't set up any of the none of the Coen um, Brothers visuals were there at all. Miller's Crossing was actually highly, highly informative and formative on Liza Block Lamora. Oh, really? Um, I, I, I knew that I, I'd found a soulmate in my editor, um, Simon Spenton, uh-huh. um, when I asked him if he'd ever seen that, and I, I was suggesting a scene to him, and he did the whole "Can you find it in your heart?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're the one for me. Right, you're perfect. It's meant to be. Marry me, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> you, one thing I was going to ask a lot earlier as we drifted along already towards the end of an hour was that it took you yourself, you know, you said uh, bear, like about five minutes to get through your first three books and have them come out with the Jenny Casey <laughs> books. So, and then, you know, very quickly to, to move on. But it took a bit longer to move on for you. And I mean, the, you know, the, the second Lock the Moore book came out quite quickly, mm-hmm. and then time passed. Um, what happened? Uh, well, okay. Yeah. The uh, I'll, I'll keep this very short. It's yeah. a long. It's a long story, but I, I've been very public about it elsewhere. And essentially, what happened is the two two things: um, surprise, divorce, and um, surprise. Uh, I'm a clinical depressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was I was for several years an undiagnosed, unmedicated, untreated um, clinical depressive, and uh, this had a lot to do with, with the you know the poisoning and destruction of my marriage, and mm-hmm. very nearly cost me my career too. Um, but I mean that that's where I was for a couple of years. It was was essentially being being sick and miserable until I kind of uh, lost the marriage and um, entered into proper treatment for um, emotional illness right. and. Uh, Started taking an antidepressant in 2010 and was was more or less able to function again, mm-hmm. even though it did take uh, about two years after that to actually finish um, and hand in a version of my third novel that I was I was um, satisfied with because uh, the guy who started writing that book and the guy who finished it you know quite a separation you know, yeah. five mm-hmm. five years and a divorce between them it was it was not the same book um, I think it was a better book for, for for everything that I crawled through to get there. But it, um, didn't seem to, it didn't seem to hurt the market, really. Uh, it was uh, well. It, it, it was a good time. Um, <laughs> he, it, ma- he managed to miss the great publishing crash. Yeah, I was checked out for a couple of years, and, and basically, I mean, like I said, my, my 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 interaction with my career had kind of stalled. But a, a curious thing was happening with with that long tail effect, with the word of mouth effect, was that a lot of readers out there were were going to their friends and saying, "Hey, you should read this book." Mm-hmm. Building yeah. that sort of yeah. personal loyalty. Dude, 
dude, dude, you gotta read this. The crappy, okay, the, the great thing about word of mouth is that it builds strong loyalty. Yeah. Um, it, it, it gets book, it's books into people's hands like nobody's business. The, the problem with it is that it's, you know, it's iterating and it takes time to work. But by the time I got back into things, and by the time Republic was released, mm-hmm. that word of mouth effect had had time to work, and Lies by that point sold you know at right. least half a million copies, and that's just in its British and, and UK. I'm sorry, British and, and American editions, um, the, the you know the, the ones that I have numbers for. Yeah. Um, so when people were ready for Republic of Thieves, they were like, Oh, thank God, another book. He's not mm-hmm. going to Stephen King us. He's He's not going to Robert Jordan us. He's not going to Robert Jordan us. I love I love George. I love you, George. Um, don't take it out. Please, please. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. My, my George R. R. Martin blurb. I, I I love it. Couldn't do without it. Um, but Republic, it just in the in the UK, just to give you some some you know some some math. Um, in, in its first nine months of release, Republic sold at least eight times what Lies did in its first year of release. Yeah. So there, I mean, there was a there was just a gigantic yeah. explosion of of attention on it, and obviously, I mean, that one actually touched the New York Times list, which neither of the previous ones had done. They've been mm-hmm. slow-blossoming, perennial bestsellers. Yeah. I mean, not bestsellers, but, I mean, they've each been reprinted something like 17 or 18 times now. I've lost yeah. track. So that, that maybe in the 20s. I don't know. I've literally lost track. Um, but that wasn't done by me. That was, done by, that was done by my readers. <laughs> yeah. Was the success of Locke Lamora a, board, a burden for a while? Um... Not necessarily. Um, it, I mean, certainly financially, it, it saved me during the t- during those years when I was sure. completely dysfunctional as a human being because it was that royalty tale that enabled mm-hmm. me to you know not be living on the street. Um, in, in terms of, of my aesthetic sensibility, I mean, it's exactly what I want to write. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm writing the series I want to write. I'm varying the character of the books enough that I don't feel that I'm writing the same book over mm-hmm. and over again. I mean, that that has its cozy appeal. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I could have... There's a part of me that could have written seven books set in Camor featuring the exact same cast of characters and done a fantasy cozy mystery series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't realize it, but I, I think that the, the um, you know, the, the Lois Bujold or the Stephen Bruce approach where you, you write books that are very obviously part of a series, yet each book is totally distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I don't know if, if I, I've hit that level of, of, of success yet, but um, you know, I like to think that the, you know, the, the first novel is, is, a revenge, uh, is, is the revenge novel, the second novel is the, mm-hmm. the heist and piracy novel, third novel is politics and romance, and the fourth novel is the war novel. Yeah. So we're, we're you know, keeping the characters, keeping the feel, keeping the atmosphere, but shifting the focus, sh- you know, shifting the narrative elements to kind yeah. of try to avoid that stagnation mm-hmm. with, with every episode. Um, so it, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels more like, I mean, the, the popular success and, and the... Um, you know the financial stability of the series. I mean, gives me the opportunity to continue it without yeah. much anxiety on that front. That nobody's going to care about it. Um, it'll be weird for me trying to get my my first non Lamora book out um, because I mean that I, I owe one to my publisher, and this is a thing that's going to in, in, in inevitably happen. Um, and so I'm sure we're going to have all sorts of fascinating teething trouble and, and, and you know marketing mm-hmm. questions. Well, you did experiment with that online, didn't you? I, I do have Queen of the Iron Sands, which is an online experiment. May someday be a print book, um, but I, I, I also need to finish that. Um, my, my, <laughs> my girlfriend is looking at me. She uh, likes this thing that I do. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean that. that May was... someday. <laughs> be a print book. It, it will definitely be finished. I can't control where it goes from there. 
Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> our listeners out in Radio Land just missed a really good baleful step. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I started uh, I started Queen of the Iron Sands basically as, as uh, self-medication almost, as, as self-treatment yeah. for my anxiety issues. Uh, and, and you can tell that it was effective by the fact that it's still unfinished six years later. <laughs> um, but, but, but this is, you know, two years before I actually got into proper treatment and medication. Yeah. So, you know, it... It may run more smoothly when I finally get a chance to get back to it, um, but uh, but you know I mean that is not that hasn't been released into you know bookstore databases that hasn't been you know that, mm. it's not out there messing up the paper trail that the Lamora mm. books leave behind them. If sure, that makes sense. Sure. And then you were saying that you know the Eternal Sky trilogy is now becoming very commercially successful. Mm. How is it to have evolved to that? Um, it's not commercially successful on a, say, a Scott Lynch or Joe Abercrombie level, <laughs> <it's commercially laughs> but it is it is um, reliably bringing home you know more than a grocery cart's worth of royalties, yeah. which is a new and exciting thing. For yeah. me. Um, it's pretty expensive to fill a grocery cart these days. Yeah. The uh, um, I I can't say I don't like it. I certainly do. Um, I like the fact that uh, I think it's some of my best work, um, and it seems to be reaching a wider audience. Yeah, it's a it's a. Um, uh, ooh, I don't even know what to say about it. Um, I like it. I'm happy. Yeah. I would like people to read my books. Let, let me put it a different way. <laughs> Do you feel? Well, have you felt pressure to be prolific to maintain a career? Oh, or absolutely. You, and um, does that begin to get? Taken off you, yeah, that, that part of it removed so that you can actually sort of relax and enjoy what you're doing more. Well, at, at, at this point, you know, I mean, I definitely felt a lot of pressure to, to be prolific, um, to maintain a career. Mm. And the thing is that I turned turned forty, um, and there's uh, at, at a certain point there's a limit to what your wrists will put up with. And there's a limit to the number of new ideas that your brain... It's not its not the actual sitting down and typing the words that's hard. It's mm. having something worthwhile to say. Yeah. That when, when you've written 10 or 15 books, what you suddenly realize is that you've said all the things that you've been thinking about for your entire life. And now you have to think about new things. Yeah. Either that or go, go mm. back and write the same book over again. And I didn't want to go back and write the same book over again, so I had to start thinking up new things. And thinking of new things slowed me down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm a better writer now than I was ten years ago. I hope, but it turns out that the the better you write, the the more complete your drafts are, the 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 more dense and intricate your storytelling is, the better your prose is. The longer it actually takes to mm-hmm. get it on the paper. Yeah. Um, you know, I I when I was uh, when I was thirty, I could throw four thousand words onto a page every day. Yeah. Um, now you know, fifteen hundred words is a really good day. Mm-hmm. Um, a really, and I average about seven hundred and fifty words a day over the over the mm-hmm. course of a year. So, do you think over over time you will slow down somewhat and continue? I yes, I'm, I'm my my current contracts have me uh, doing writing a book about every nine months. Yeah. Um, which is still pretty fast. I mean, it's not like Shona McGuire fast, but she's mm-hmm. she's she's triplets. We all know it. You mm-hmm. know, we're we're convinced. Yeah. Um, but you feel like you have the freedom to basically invent your next project without having. I mean, the the situation it, it doesn't happen as much with fantasy and science fiction writers as it does with mystery writers, where you have a franchise and 
I used to know Robert Parker who wrote the um, Spencer novels. Yeah. And, you know, that they would throw a ton of money at him every year for a new Spencer novel. Mm-hmm. And he was writing his heart out on these other things. He was writing westerns. He was writing a generational saga. And it got to the point, the last time I talked to him before he died, where he could... He knew how Spencer and Hawk were going to talk to each other, and he could spend two weeks writing one of those novels to get the money, but he had... And that he could not get them very interested in what he thought of as his serious fiction at all. So it's like writing Spencer novels were his day job while he tried to become, you know, the writer he wanted to be. Well, it's, it, Walter Mosley does the same thing, right? Yeah. Every every so often you can tell he needs money because there's a new Easy Rollins novel. Well, and to be and honest... great. To be honest, Roger Zelazny once said to me when he was about in the seventh or eighth, uh, you know, one of the Amber novels, he needed a new swimming pool, so there's another Amber novel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... I, I actually, I think it, it, it's. I don't see why somehow this becomes a terrible thing when writers do it, That's when right. actors do it all the time. Yeah. You know, the, the the John Cusack, I'm going to do one blockbuster movie to fund my next three indie projects, kind of approach. You, no, you, no, you're, you're making me ask an unanswerable question. Who is yeah. the Who is the Nicholas Cage of fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to have a Nicholas yeah, Cage. Well, we have to do that after now. we stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got a Nicholas Cage match. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, but ideally, I mean, really the ideal situation, and this is weird, I mean, you know, this is this weird, vicarious way that people want to live through their, their their artistic heroes, or at least their artistic interests of, you know, we, we want them to be pure and unsullied by the act of mere commerce, and we, well, yeah. we want them to live a hard scrabble, you know, stuck in a garret existence, you know, living only for their work. You know what? That, that sucks. Yeah. 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 Robin is boring when yeah, you're sure. 25. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, know, I, you know, it, it, it is very romantic to look at the sort of thing from the outside, but, you know, god damn it, um, you know, I... Yeah, like I, to be able to fix the hole in the roof. Yeah, really, really. Mm-hmm. And... You know the, the ideal situation, but this is the the this is this is uh, what one of those problems is, is that um, not many writers um, are 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 able to produce um, their most scintillating work from a position of relative comfort. Um, so I, I guess the ideal would be to both throw lots of money at, at writers everywhere and yet allow us to, you know, maybe have, like, electroshock chambers and <laughs> subject ourselves to misery? No, I, 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 I'm... gonna... I'm gonna... I'm being incredibly over... No, I'm being incredibly overgeneral and somewhat sarcastic here. Yes. Um, the, the, I but, hate that myth that, that, that artists must suffer to... to oh, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's bullshit. It really is. Um, and the, I, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of writers out there who, you know, suffered their entire lives and really deserved better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, of, of the world. How did how did how did being profoundly depressed and in incredible misery work out for you? And uh, from an artistic standpoint, so. well, you know, other than the fact <laughs> that it destroyed my marriage and nearly destroyed my career and sucked five years out of my life, I guess it worked out pretty yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, you know, freaking, you know, uh, Shirley Jackson, H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, you know, no. why is why is dying in misery and you know this is such an appealing romantic gesture? I, I, I'm not sure it's that so much the fact that writers don't necessarily have a choice about how they write. Yeah, uh, you, you have you have people who can uh, grind out four or five books a year, and they just it's it's a job, it's a profession, it's a craft, and then 
Uh, or you have somebody like Stephen King who can't not write four or five books a year. And then we've got someone like Stephen Donaldson who makes it sound as though you wish he'd rather just, I don't know, take up cutting himself or something because he <laughs> makes it sound so unpleasant to write but that, that you can't even begin to wonder why he's doing it. But you've got people who love writing and who just can't. You've got a John Crowley who will yeah. write a novel every few years. It'll be perfect, yeah. but it's not going to make a lot of money. Or it takes... It, Peter Straub, who was collaborating with Stephen King, it takes him three or four years to, to work out a novel. And he's happy doing it, and he happens to be one of the people who was successful enough that he can take the time. Yeah. But even if he weren't that successful, it would take him that long to write a novel. because It, there's takes, so, yeah, it takes five to seven years to get a Tim Powers novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What you get is a Tim Powers novel. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah, exactly. And so we, 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 have these, we have these pressures and we have these presumptions, and you know, we, we hear them a lot as authors, the whole, like, you know, if you want to write, you must be able to produce you know, yeah. two books yeah. a year, three books a year, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever. And it, the, 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 the great secret is that an awful lot of you know, professional writers aren't actually professional full-time writers at all. They have other jobs. They do other things. Well, and the other thing is that I, I actually feel this is one way where social media plays us really false, because there, there gets to be this competition thing about, I must write X number of words a day. Yeah. If you see that on yeah. Twitter all the time. And I mean, time. yes, when, so I, when I'm attempting to produce, I will certainly say, well, I have to write a thousand words today. I have to write two thousand uh-huh. words today to hit my deadline. Right. But the, the thing is that I have to be able to write, it's not two thousand words. What I need is to get a significant chunk closer mm-hmm. to the end of the novel. And when I tell myself two thousand words, what I'm saying is that I need to have um, I, I need to have a concrete goal that I can look at and say I have done enough work now I can stop because we're all self-employed mm. and we'll uh-huh. work ourselves to death you know I mean we... or, or sit around and stare out the window and do exactly. the laundry exactly and if, if for me if I don't have a concrete thing that tells me I've done enough work today the guilt kills me I'm, yeah. I just I have but, a guilt but, uh, that yeah. follows me around a thousand words a day does not necessarily mean the same kind of progress for different writers. Exactly. A thousand words a day for Scott is much a much smaller chunk of a novel than a thousand words a day for me. <laughs> Ray Bradbury told a story about when he was first learning to write from Lee Brackett, among other people. Uh, he, you know, Somebody said, write a thousand words a day or write two, whatever it was. And he started doing this in the early 40s. And finally, when he realized, actually it was when he published a short story called The Lake, in 1946, and he realized he was now a writer. And he went back and looked at all these thousands of pages that had looked at it and he said, this is awful. <laughs> he burned it. I mean, he claims to have burned a million words of his early manuscripts yeah. because once he learned how to write, he didn't want that stuff ever coming to light. Well, it's, it's uh, Stephen King. You mm-hmm. have to write a million words of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. When, you define, when, you, when you define writerhood and, and your picture of, of, you know, of, of the author um, by, in, in terms of, of, of sheer uh, you know, work out productivity, um, basically you, you, you cut a whole lot of, of the jewels of the genre out of that picture. And yeah. you, you leave no room in that picture for people like Raphael Carter. Who Kelly Link. You know, yeah. So someone who comes out of the attic every Ted 15 Chang. years with a you know, brilliant novel and then vanishes again. You know, John M. Ford. Oh. A, a real eccentric genius, you know, a, a guy who could, you know, drive his editors mad, put him off a deadline for seven years, but mm-hmm. on whim create staggering works of, of artistic beauty. I once had the early in my writing career, I had the absolute privilege of sitting at a lunch table with Tim Powers and Stephen Bruce while they got into a um, 
a manuscript measuring contest oh, really? <laughs> over who was more overdue on their novel. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe Steve won by about three months. That's impressive. Oh. No, that is impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, impressed. this this was during the great Steve Bruce Lacuna. Yeah. <laughs> when, he was, when he was being a professional gambler in Las Vegas. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Karen Memory came out earlier this year. It's been hailed as one of the, the best books of the year. God, I hope so. Which is which is a you know, a nice thing. And you're saying what you're now working on more Shadowed Sky books. I'm okay. I'm working on more yeah Eternal Sky books. Um, Just, sorry. Well, they're not exactly more Eternal Sky books. There are three more books set in the Eternal Sky universe. They're about fifty years later than the other books and have an almost completely different cast yeah. of characters and they're in a different location. Um, but as Scott pointed out to me this morning, uh, when I was bemoaning the fact that I was ending the first book on a cliffhanger, um, sorry, marketing department, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that well, that just means that you're echoing the, the structure of the first trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, you're a genius. You can do all of mine. <laughs> um, the, uh, I have those under contract. I have two, uh, two space operas for Galantz under contract. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I hope maybe to write another Karen memory book. Yeah. Not not so much a series book as another book with those characters and sure. that kind of voice. I, I am tempted to just briefly ask you whether you feel that space opera has become the the fantasy of science fiction, the uh, epic fantasy of science fiction. It, it in some ways it has. I mean, it depends on what you mean by space opera. What I'm what I'm aiming at is sort of the, the C.J. Cherry, mm-hmm. um, Ian Banks mm-hmm. end of things. Sure. Well, I mean that. I mean, you're talking about yeah. points where quite often, I mean, the science is such and what they're projecting in the universe is such that it really is it's never remotely real. Right. These are epic stories told yes. against a science fictiony backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that's. I think that's totally correct. Yeah. But it always has been. I was yeah. going to say, oh, yeah. Skylark of Space oh, is no. exactly what you just said. Well, it's, 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 it, you know, it, once, once you start throwing psionics into your science. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it's, that's, but that's one of those things that's grandfathered in, right? We have certain things that are grandfathered mm-hmm. into science fiction. Um, psychic, certain psychic abilities. Yeah. Uh, time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, faster than light travel, right? They're all kind yeah. of grandfathered mm-hmm. in, even though we think they're probably. Yeah. Probably. Nonsense. Yeah, and Handwavium and, bu- and forgiving Handwavium and Bullshitium is a time honored tradition for readers and writers of, of you know science sure. fiction fantasy in general. Um, you know, t- t- it, because it's it's important to be incredibly accurate and strict and rigorous about the consequences, but don't tell us what's in the magic box that makes it work. Right. Well, and, and, and the interesting thing is that also um, I'm going to be a little more rigorous with my science on these than is typical in space opera, mm-hmm. especially you know far mm-hmm. future space opera. Uh, for the simple reason of there's there's a, a phenomenon that Charlie Strauss and I have observed is that he and I can put exactly the same amount of bullshitium into a quote unquote science fiction mm-hmm. story, but his is a hard science fiction story and mine is space opera because I'm a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're a girl. I know. I know. <laughs> no. we, we we noticed this with like uh, a glass house and undertow in yep. particular, uh-huh. which, which have basically the same. We each m- made one took took one aspect of quantum mechanics and went fuck it. This mm. doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> so two big hard science fiction novels coming from Dolan's then. More than sp- hard science fiction, yeah, sprawling, yeah. sprawling far future hard science fiction novels, and they're coming out. Uh, the first one should be coming out in 2016 or 2017, depending on how badly I blow my deadline by. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Scott? What, what's happening f- for you? 
Uh, what happens next is uh, the fourth book in the Gentleman Bastard sequence, The Thorn of Emberlane, which should be out in July of yep. 2016. And um, then oh, I, I also owe Subterranean Press some shorter works, um, which will be um, sidelines in the Lamora sequence. Yeah. Uh, a, a bridge narrative between books three and four, but not essential to understanding either of them, because I'm I'm bound and determined not to do that. Uh, you must have read this to understand this. Yeah. Um, and after that, um, I, I would really like to get to Untitled Lynch Number One, the uh, the non bastards side project, which I I've owed Glance for ten years now. Mm. Um, which which will be, I, I think, a fantasy science fiction mashup that I really shouldn't talk about beyond that. And we'll keep and tracing. buying a house. And you're buying a house. Yes, we are we are <laughs> we are we are we are keeping our, ourselves entertained in our copious spare time by buying a house and, and, and planning to move in the Midwest. Later. Uh, no, no, we're moving to Massachusetts. So. Oh, well, so... She and won. writing a short story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I owe someone in this yeah, room someone yes, a pair of short stories. <laughs> right, exactly. Two, two short stories now. I owe you yeah. three. I owe you three. Crap. We agree to this podcast yes, and, and walk out of the room and Jonathan's tell you is that you're not leaving the room after this podcast. <laughs> Well, no, I trust her. He has to stop. <laughs> and, and with that, with that, we might we might wind up and say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real delight, and I hope we get to, to talk to you again sometime in the coming years. Thank you. We would love to. You dirty bastard. <laughs> and until thank next you. week again, we will chat. But this is the another Coot Street podcast from World Fantasy 2015. Yes, 2015. It's getting old, he forgets. Uh, I know. Still only 2015. It's still, well. Barely. <laughs>